Welcome to Daily Dose of Dr. Mary and Dee. I'm Maz Mary. And I'm Dana DelVal. Whether you're a person on an addiction sobriety path, or you know someone who is, we're here to talk about our journey with it. And more importantly, we want to help end the stigma and shame of alcoholism. And we want to bring some hope and laughter along the way too. Thanks for tuning in. Good morning. Good morning. Um, it's Thursday, which means it's Guest Thursday. So we are going to jump right into this conversation because otherwise I think what we'll talk about is weather and the abruptness of that um, ending. And we don't need to keep doing that. Yeah, so let's bring our guest, Stefan Marion, to the screen. Good morning, Stefan. How are you? Good I'm good. How are you guys this morning? Good. We're well, too. Thanks. Thanks so much for joining us from Texas. No, I'm honored to be here. I yeah, you know, we're, we're holding down the northern front and you're holding down the southern front. So that's yeah. quite, a, quite a burden we're carrying <laughs> in the country this size. <laughs> no. Um, so you work for an organization called Real Deal, which is an alternative housing system for people going through sobriety. And we'll get to that because mm -hmm. I think that the story and the work is really interesting. But let's start with your journey, because when you and I had a conversation, I was really fascinated to just hear the way that you ended up where you ended up. So take us back to wherever you want, Stefan, and we'll just be along for the ride. Sure. Um, so, you know, substance use has like been a part of my life, whether it's alcohol or drugs, since I was like in grade school, honestly, like seventh, eighth grade. Um you know, kind of ran the, the full gamut of trying new things and experimenting with different drugs. And um, eventually uh, it was the painkillers that brought me, brought me to my demise. And it was kind of on the back end of uh, being in the Canadian healthcare system where uh, it took me a year and a half to get into a shoulder specialist. And like the whole time I'm, I'm being prescribed Oxycontin and you know what we know about oxycontin is that the effectiveness is very short-lived so you have to continue to increase dosages on it um so it took me a year and a half to get in it took me another year to get an mri and then for four years uh the surgeon told me i was nothing but a lazy liar and i had frozen shoulder um you know much to the dismay of my parents and everybody around me they you know because what it looked like on the outside is like we just have this addicted person yeah. who's addicted to painkillers and everything he says is false, right? Including this, it, it probably looked like I was just trying to continue to stay on my painkillers. Uh, like at the end, like when I was going to have my sets of surgeries, I was prescribed 240, 40 milligram Oxycontins a month with the highest dose fentanyl patches as well. Jesus. And not not even touching my pain, right? Like in a constant state of pain. And like I was a I was a union boilermaker. I'm working in the refineries. I'm literally having to walk around holding my sleeve with my arm because I can't use it. Um, climbing up towers, working inside of towers, doing all of that work. Um, well, on this and like just on a, a an unbelievable amount of oxycontin um 
when I had my shoulder replacement, I had to go to treatment for 30 days to lower my, um, <laughs> to lower the, the threshold of if painkillers could work or not. Like, because they, the, the surgeon said he wouldn't have been able to keep me under and they wouldn't have been able to control the surgery, the pain in my surgery. So I had to go to treatment for 30 days knowing that I was going to have my shoulder surgery and then have to go right back on opiate painkillers. That's when I had my replacement done. Wow. That's terrible. Mm -hmm. Very terrible. Very terrible. And, um, can I just say, yeah, congratulations on (laughs) like figuring that out or getting past. I mean, that's astonishing. Mm -hmm. You would never say to someone else addicted to something, Let's get you off it because we're going to put you yeah. right back so on it. We're going to treat, you're going to treat your addiction and then we're going to get you lit up and you're going to become addicted again, right? Right. Like, like you know, I finally convinced my father to come along on one of the appointments in Canada because, like, nobody believed me. Like, they just thought it, you know, frozen shoulder. Uh, he came along on the appointment and saw what the doctor was saying two weeks later. I saw an orthopedic surgeon in Michigan, and two weeks after that, I had my first arthroscopic surgery. Um, my whole shoulder was encapsulated in scar tissue, like all the way down to the elbow. I had bone shards all the way down, like throughout my my whole uh, upper arm. I had a vascular necrosis in my shoulder, meaning like there was no blood <laughs> getting to parts I, of my I shoulder, and the bone was dying off. And then add, you know. Uh, osteoarthritis on top of it. Um, you know, I I ended up having a couple arthroscopic surgeries and eventually had my shoulder replaced in Chicago. Yeah. Um, because the Canadian health system just wasn't cutting it. Um, had had my shoulder have been a dealt with years before, uh, it may not have had to have been replaced. Yeah. Yeah, I had a shoulder replacement done at 33 years old. Yeah, it's it's astonishing. And, um, you know, this is not a conversation about the merits of Canadian versus American care, but um, it's easy from an American perspective, particularly married to someone who has a socialized healthcare background from England to say, man, ours is screwed up. And that is the way forward. And you are clearly an example of somebody who fell horrifically through the cracks of yeah. socialized medicine. I mean, I, there's just no other way to look at it. Even even treatment in Canada for substance use disorder is it we they, we just don't have it there like we do here, right? Because it's a socialized system. Yeah, it's it's entirely different. Um, like I remember trying to get into a treatment center in Canada and being told like I had to have 30 days clean. And I'm just like, how, yeah. how on earth am I supposed to do that? Um, if I could get 30 days clean. You wouldn't need to go. Logically, I would assume that I probably didn't need to go. And that was back then, obviously, uh, our understanding of treatment and the continuum of care has changed greatly in the last 12 years, 13, 14 years. Right. Uh, but back then it didn't make any sense to me. Yeah. So were the Canadians at the time lumping an addiction in with mental health? No, I wouldn't say that. Not, 
I, I don't think it was much different than here in the approach back 12 years ago where addiction was addiction, mental health was mental health and, you know, dual diagnosis wasn't even a catch word. Mm. Um, right. It, you know, a lot has changed in 12, you know, 15 to 12 years ago, like in that time frame. it's just, it's an entirely different understanding of what we're dealing with. Yeah. Uh, professionally and just what we see. Um, yeah, there, there just wasn't a lot of treatment centers. Um, yeah. You know, I, since I've, I work in the industry, I've learned about some that are spread out across the country in Canada, but I just had no knowledge of them. And like Chat, Chatworth Pavilion in Montreal, um, which I never knew about back then. But like, there are great treatment centers in Canada. It's just that it wasn't just as widely known. Mm. Um well, I, I do think that that is <clears throat> based on past guests that we've talked to. Like I'm thinking about a woman named Joanna Conti, whose um, daughter was in the throes of addiction multiple times in and out of treatment. And and her sort of her mandate after going through this with her daughter was just we have to do a better job of helping people not just know about treatment centers, but know what are the what are the pros and cons of this particular treatment center and and you know what will most serve your individualized needs so if you're a transgendered person maybe you don't go to a run of the mill treatment center because they may not be able to deal with the complexities of that or you know all these mm. all these different issues and i'm i'm sad to say you are not the first person we've talked to who was told, well, you need to be sober for 30 days and then come back. And these were all American stories. So mm -hmm. I I think that he, the story I'm thinking of also happened about 15 or 20 years ago. So I, I'm hopeful that it's better everywhere, but that's right. the most crazy thing. That's like saying to a cancer patient, cure your cancer and come back for radiation. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, it's, it's nonsensical. Yeah. Right. Yeah, because everybody would fix themselves if they could of all the things that derail yeah. us. Yeah, everyone yeah. could just read like, I'm okay, you're okay, or one of the other <laughs> books and we'd be good to go. Right, yeah. Right? Um, yeah, the 80s, the dream of the 80s self-help book series that all came out would, you know, would have all rung true and we would be better off as a society, but it's just not what happened. No, no, it's um, not. It's not. And, you know, like we are seeing like what is cool to watch in the addiction treatment industry right now is that like what was known as boutique places, like those specialty places, they're becoming a lot more mainstream. Yeah. And there's more of them that are going in network with insurance companies, yeah. which means right. more access to care. Right. Because at one point um, they were all out of network and they were all hyper expensive and we're, we're you know, we're starting to see that there's more specialty places opening up and it's becoming less boutique -y and more mainstream. So let's use that as an opportunity to transition to what you, where you currently work, um, because it's so, it's such an interesting story. So let me put the, um, let me just put the website up. There you go. Oh, that is not at all what I want to <laughs> There you go. Nor is that. Oh, third time's a All right, hold on. You start talking, Stefan. I'll get okay. the <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my gosh. So I've, 
you know, I've, I've worked in this industry in some sense or another since I was like four months sober. I started managing a sober house. Wow. Um, and I've just stayed in it and there we go. Uh, stayed in some respect since then. Um, and like what we, what I've seen myself is that there's like, there's gaps and there's a lot of people that fall through those gaps. Um, I got tired of listening to guys coming or women coming to our houses and it's just like, okay, well, what treatment centers have you been to or what sober livings have you been to? And the answer is all of them. Yeah. Like what an alarming, alarming statement to hear from someone who like needs help. And like they've been to 30, 40 treatment centers or they've, they've been through every single sober living in an area. And I just, it was bothersome. Yeah. It was like really bothersome um, because it seems like we're having a lot of people fall through the gaps and it's the, the death rates are too high right now. Yeah. So like, what is sober living? Explain that as a concept because sure. we have not experienced it. So I know about it because I've spent time with people, but explain it to our audience. So it is essentially a, home uh which would house you know in our case we have men's homes women's homes um which offers guidance structure and support um you know like there's like in ours for for instance like we breathalyze daily and we do random drug testing and there's curfews and there's requirements um it used to be around 12 step meetings but like it's i've opened that up mm. and so um whether it's, you know, traditional 12 step or, you know, one of the break offs, uh, refuge, or I guess it's Dharma recovery now. Okay. Uh, smart recovery. Um, it, it's of no consequence to me what your recovery path is, as long as we can help you engage in it. Yeah. Um, you know, like I, I'm, I'm a 12 step guy come from a very, um, pretty like heavy 12 step lineage. Um, but that's not everyone's cup, a mm-hmm. cup of tea, right? Um, and the 12 steps don't fix everything. Yeah. 12 steps fix an alcohol or drug problem, but could worsen your trauma. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like if your trauma's on the surface, and so like it might not make sense for someone to jump right into like a big book thumping lineage of, of Alcoholics Anonymous because they could be triggered. Maybe they have some DBT work so they can emotionally regulate first, or maybe they need to work on a bunch of trauma so that they're not constantly being triggered, right? Like, so it's just a more open approach to what your recovery path can be. Um, we also have mat houses as well, like houses that are supportive of people on Suboxone or Subutex, uh, things like that as well. Uh, it's not all of our houses, but we do have a couple houses that are mat friendly now as well. So, does that mean um, you're using drugs to? to lessen your yes addic- that's what that means right that's what those drugs are um yes in the case of suboxone it, like it also has a blocker in it as well right so like the the idea is that even if you were to take say an oxycontin or something like that or fentanyl uh the receptors since they have a blocker in it wouldn't allow um one of those drugs like fentanyl to pass into the brain it's basically, I've never thought about this, but it's basically 
a drug antihistamine. Essentially. Right? Yeah. Essentially. That's a good way of looking at it. Okay. Yeah. Um, is it everyone's cup of tea? No, no. Uh, was I dead set against it for years? Absolutely. I have a horrible experience with Suboxone. Mm -hmm. um, the detox was far worse yeah. than the painkillers. Why? I don't know why. Oh, um, okay. Like, you know, everything, everything from a scientific standpoint or study standpoint says the opposite. But everything I see visually with my eyes and have experienced myself or have seen in others states otherwise. Um wow. And like, is it my cup of tea? No, but I'm a parent now. And so if I had a, if I had a 16, 17, 18, 19 year old child who had tried the abstinence way and continues to overdose as a parent, would I do everything in my power to try and protect my children? Absolutely. I would. Yeah. And so it, it kind of changed this thinking that I had about like, well, what would I do to protect my children? Mm-hmm. Like, cause like at one point, like it was just like everybody, like, let's get angry at the parents. You're enabling your children. Meanwhile, the parents just trying to keep their kid alive. Yeah. And, you know, having children has really changed my perspective on that. Uh, it's not my cup of tea, but it doesn't have to be as a compassionate, understanding parent as well. I can understand that someone's just trying to save their child's life. Yeah. yeah. And um, it's not to say that they sh should stay on it forever. But like maybe they're just not a, at a point where abstinence recovery is going to happen for them. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's not my job to judge. It's my job to like offer support. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, and so we do have a couple of sober living houses that allow for that. Um, you know, we've we've found that a lot of people after being in those houses on that eventually come off of themselves. Uh, without any prompting by us. And then, you know, they end up going into abstinence space recovery and they're fine. But like, it's, it's not my job to tell them that you can't do that right now. Um, we found the opposite by allowing it that a bunch of these guys and women end up coming off of it on their own. Mm. Yeah. Um, well, nobody likes to be told what they can or can't do. I don't care what mental state you're in. I don't care where you are in your life. I just... I rarely find an adult who says, you know what I want? I want you to just tell me what to do because I can't figure it out. I, right. yeah. I mean, why would we be surprised that someone who's got an addiction is any different than anybody else? The minute you tell me I can't do something, that's the only thing I really want to do. Right. And like, obviously, like there has to be, like, there's a very fine line to walk in that, right? Like we can't just be so nonchalant about what we're saying or what we're supporting that we just allow people to do this, uh, to, you know, to continue on their drugs, like it's somehow justified, but, you know, as a path of recovery in a highly structured environment, it, it can make sense. Yeah, for sure. It can make sense. So I think I know the answer to this, but a sober living house comes post treatment, correct? Can you go straight to sober living? You can. Oh, you can. Okay. Is it is it ideal? No. Um, do we have success stories doing that? Yeah, absolutely. Especially if someone's been to treatment a bunch of times before. Yeah. Uh, like, do they? Do you need to go sit in a treatment center for the fourteenth time, or do you just need to go and detox and hit the road running? And it could be either right? It, it depends on your story and, and what co-occurring issues you have or, or what you're currently facing. Um, 
sometimes it makes sense that like, like I don't need to go back to treatment. I like, especially for like people that are big 12 step people, like a lot of them are just like, I just need to get back into the rooms and mm. you know, go back into my step work and hit the ground running. And in those cases, it it's great. But like, if someone's like emotionally dysregulated and they have a bunch of other issues going on, like probably better you go to treatment first, right? Mm. Um, go and stabilize somewhere for 30, 45, 60 days, then use sober living and maybe uh, an intensive outpatient program or a partial hospitalization program as part, you know, as your continuum of care. But Go ahead. Right. No, 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 you go. Um, it, it, it's, you know, it, it's just an environment with a set of rules to help keep you moving down the path in the correct direction right like that's essentially the goal of a sober living so one of the things that i have we've heard some people talk about and i'm really curious to hear your thoughts on this particularly as someone who did figure out how to set this addiction aside in your own life what's the efficacy of 30, 45, 60 days in treatment, then however long you're in sober living. And then all of a sudden you are back in the real world where all of those triggers, all of those substances are pretty readily available again. And you're back maybe in your old habits, in your old life. How, how do you see that working? Because it feels... It feels from a, I don't know anything perspective, like you're in a bubble and the bubble pops and you're just on your own. Um, yes, it, it can absolutely seem like that for sure. Um, we try to like, uh, yes, we have absolute rules in the house. We, uh, But we're also not trying to be so restrictive that it's not mimicking part of real life either, mm -hmm. right? Um, and like you talk about the efficacy of it. and. Like, I, I think the first thing we have to do is redefine what success is like that. That has to be the key. Right. Um, traditional success is like. You stay abstinent or you fail. Mm. Right. And every time you're not abstinent, it's a failure. Yeah. Right. Like this is this is an inherent problem. Uh, it's shaming. It causes like unbelievable shame, depression and a bunch of other things. And it, I'm, I'm not saying that we should cheer every time somebody relapses. That's not it. But like what I am saying is like the length of your relapses, have they become shorter over time? And the time frame between them is, is that growing longer? And if that's the case, then like we are on a successful path. Mm -hmm. Does it look like your traditional, like you stop using and like any relapse is considered a failure and you reset your, your sobriety date and you have to start all over. Uh, sure, that's part of an abstinence-based program, but like we can't define success in that same way, right? In in a way that's healthy mm. for people on that path. Like it, I, you have I, to look at this like long term. Yeah, yeah. we know that relapse happens in most cases. Mm. We know that, right? So if we stop calling it a failure and and like I'm not saying relapse has to be a part of people's journey. I know people that have, they were one and done and 
it's amazing. I, I'm glad that they didn't have to go through the turmoil and the pain that some of us, some of the other people did. But we, we need to start readdressing how we how we word this and 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 the labels we put on people around this. Like, if you weren't able to stay sober more than seven days and you just got six months and through whatever reason, like you ended up relapsing and it was a single night. Is that a failure? Hmm. Right. Or is that, is that like marked progress, like incredible marked progress. And then we just need to do a little support around you here, get you back on track and, and keep you moving on your way. Right. Like that, that I think is uh, we're starting to see more of that in the industry, but I think that's a place where we lacked for years. Yeah. Um, just like absolute abstinence is the only mark of success in our industry. And that that's, in, it's ridiculous. <laughs> it's completely ridiculous to me. Well, it's, it's such an unfairly high metric that mm -hmm. nobody else is expected to live by. Right. You know, so if you lose a bunch of weight, and you put the weight back on. Uh, oh, but it takes 10 years to put the weight back on. Well, okay, it's, this, it's the same model, but we don't throw those people away no. or, or tell them that they are just doomed to be failures. Uh, it's It's been so illuminating. So I would say it's it's about a year since we first had someone come to us and say, look, if you get a 95 on a test, huh. Does someone say yeah. to you, well, you didn't get a hundred, so you may as well have gotten a zero. You're a loser. Go back to the beginning. But if you get 95 out of a hundred days sober, you have to go back to zero in an AA model. Sure. And and like, like, look, that's not a, AA is AA. AA is not treatment, right? Like we need to, that's, we need to separate those. Yeah. Like we're not, the, it's not the same thing. They're not one in the same, right? Like when we're looking at successful treatment, Successful treatment is defined by less episodes of relapse and shorter amount of days in those relapses, right? Like that, that is success. Um, it'd be like the same with treating cancer. Cancer could come back, but if it doesn't come back for like five years or you're able to like slow down the growth of the tumors, like that could be considered successful in yeah. some cases. That's true. Right. Um, and it's the same. And like, look, uh, if I were to relapse, I would absolutely go back to AA, pick up a desire chip and start over again. Like, and that's out of respect to the, what the program is. Like, I, I'm, it's not, I'm not, it's not my job to champion the change of AA, nor do I want to. Um, it, that's not what I'm saying. It's just that like, as a treatment industry, we need to, or any supportive treatment model, we need to look at offsetting that by like, you know, recognizing that there has been some success despite a lapse. Yeah. Right. And, and build off of the positive rather than hammering the negative. So Stephen, you got, you got these fantastic houses set up. I mean, clearly, and we haven't touched on this yet. You don't just sit around in this house and stare at the wall or quietly read a book or spend your days watching Netflix. I mean, do you, do they do anything during the day to help them? Uh, yeah, like if you're not in school or in like a, some level of outpatient care, like you're required to get a job within 30 days, mm. right? Like you you have to start integrating back into society at some point. 
Um, are there cases where we allow more leniency in that? Of course, right? Like, of course there are. Um, are there people where we would try to, you know, help support them and push them back into a job quicker? Yes, there, there's also the other side of that. It's more about them and, you know, what their motivations are and what what is helpful to them. For some people, having a job is extremely helpful. Yeah. And like it can help keep them on track, right? Like it ties up a lot of their day and uh, they can go to work and just kind of, sh you know, shut down all of this rapid thinking and focus on something for eight hours. And then when they leave there, they can go to their supportive recovery meetings. Like for some people that is incredibly helpful. Um, for some people like working in a stressful situation, it's not. Yeah. Right. And so like, you've got to kind of, you've got to temper your, your rules some in these cases and like kind of be aware of like who you're talking to and what you're, you know, what, what they're dealing with. Um, it, it's just one of those things, you know, like I, I also pride our, our company, like on the fact that like when somebody relapses, we just don't throw them out. Mm. Yeah. Like we, we stop, right? Like whoop, pump the brakes here. Like, um, why did you relapse? What, what's going on? Yeah. You know, would a higher level of care, help you in this situation um would going back to residential or to a detox or maybe an acute psych stabilization unit or whatever it is would that be more helpful right now than us just throwing you out in the streets yeah. uh, and the answer is uh 99.9 .9 yes it would be more helpful if we paused for a minute maybe let you stay the night um just make sure that you don't have any drugs or that you're not a harm to anybody in the house let you stay the night so we can figure this out and, and make a proper decision the next day and start moving you towards that. Um, obviously like if you're belligerent and you're threatening people in the house, that's a different story. But like um, if you just pause and just say like, look, like we're not throwing you out right this right. Like we're not throwing you out tonight. You have a place to stay, but like we're, we're about to engage in a dialogue where we're going to figure out what you need next. Uh, it could be that you stay here or you move to a different house and that you just maybe go to an IOP or um, maybe you double down in, in your personal recovery and start being more active. It's it's really on a case-by-case -case basis, but I don't see much help in just throwing people out into the streets. No, no. Rarely yeah. do people get better when their circumstances become more dire. Um now now anyways was there a time where like that tough love stuff was more useful than it is now of course there was of course there was but we're dealing with an entirely different beast than we were even say three years ago the amount of mental health like severe chronic mental health that is tied into addiction right now um it it, it just doesn't look the same yeah like it, it doesn't even remotely look the same. Um, we are seeing more complex mental health with addiction and it, it just keeps going up. Like it's not going the other way. Um, I don't know what it is. I, I don't, but it's, it's definitely what we're seeing. And when I, you know, when I talk to colleagues across the industry, 
it's it's not just us. It's this seems to be like the way we're trending right now, and I, I don't know what what caused this. Obviously, COVID has probably played a role in some of this stuff coming up to the surface faster than it might have on its own. And I, maybe we're just dealing with a massive influx of people that have been set off or their mental health has been set off because of COVID and isolation and fear. Um, I don't know. I, but I do know that it's, it's serious and it's, 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 it's in so much of everything that we deal with now. So I, unless Maz has other questions for you, I, I just have one more question and I, I don't have any idea what you're going to answer it with, but <laughs> how in the world do you show up and do this work every oh my God. day? Yeah. Uh, it feels from an outside perspective, really daunting, hopeless and daunting. Just... How do you do this? Um, yeah, uh, that's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a really good question, right? Like, obviously, like, there's some, there's some inherent part of me that wants to help people, right? Like, that has to be the driving force behind all of this, right? Um, and, the, like, there has to be some force inside of me that's also saying that, like, I don't necessarily agree with the status quo of what's been going on and want to make a change, right? Right. Like I have to believe both of those things in order to continue to show up at work. Yeah. Um, you know, I spend a lot of time talking with families, um, re-coaching families around like some bad advice they've been given in the past. Um, I, I love talking to a to the families. I like empowering families. Mm. Um, and I, I like, I like talking with, the men and women that come through our programming um cases like where everyone essentially has given up on them and then they string together like nine ten eleven months of sobriety like that's that's really really the thing that keeps me coming back is like you know i'm sure i was once labeled hopeless mm -hmm. multiple times probably i went to treatment seven times you know yeah. um all of which were in the states but it, I, I think it's when, you know, someone's been told, told that they're hopeless. The family's been told just to like, kind of, you know, lock your doors and just ignore them. And, you know, we're able to like, through some compassion and understanding and maybe looking at it a little differently, able to get through to them. And it's by no means me. Like I have an incredible team of people that work around me. Um, like that they're just fantastic. Right. And when we get through to somebody like that and like you can see success on someone who's been deemed a failure their entire life, like that's what keeps me going. Yeah. yeah. Right. Or like where everyone's just scratching their head and you stop for a minute and like you help find them the proper resource for whatever they need. And like the family, like finally, feels like some sense of relief after 10 yeah. or 12 years of dealing with this and nobody's ever pointed them in the right direction. Yeah. Those are the, those are the things that I, I love. Those are the things that keep me coming back. Uh, it's been a wild week at work. It's like absolutely been a wild week with like dealing with some very tough clients, but like they're, 
they're guys that we have seen marked improvement and like they've been clean for like a considerable amount of time. Um, they can cause a lot of stress, but like at the end of the day, like when you look at their, their progress, like in a, in a period of time and like see that they are not the same person that they were and that um, the amount of personal growth and that they've shown, like that's, that's what keeps me wanting to do this, you know, all the time. Yeah. Um, it's tough. It's, it's, it's tough on my family too. Some days. Oh, you know? I can't imagine. Yeah. I can't imagine. Yeah. Like trying to figure out balance between work and home life when you work in a chaotic system where, you know, my phone could ring at midnight or one o'clock when somebody's in crisis in one of our houses or, and they need some guidance on how to, to help with that. Yeah. Um, you know, my, my family appreciates what I do for a living, but it's not to say that there aren't personal struggles. I'm trying to balance that. They still exist. 12 and a half years in. Yeah. Uh, they still really exist. Well, gosh, this has been um, really illuminating. We, Like I said, we haven't talked to anybody who works in this specific piece of this work. So thank you for sharing. Yeah your own story and and the the way that this is a piece of this much longer larger journey called addiction yeah um, because i i think every every step we can learn more about the long termness of it hopefully helps to dismantle some of the um ways that we write people off or or dismiss programs or or anything else in this work because the complexity of it is just astonishing so thank you for joining us Stefan. it was so thank interesting was very no thank you for having me uh, honored to be here um yeah i'm excited well, to be here yeah well we loved it so uh continue to have cool yes. weather we hope <laughs> and uh yeah good luck good luck going forward and we'll stay in touch thanks so much all right thank you guys Bye. Everybody Bye. else, we'll see you on Tuesday. Bye. Thanks so much for tuning in to Daily Dose of Dr. Mary and DD. If you enjoyed the content and want to learn more, head over to Facebook to Daily Dose Dr. Mary DD. You can find us on YouTube under Dana DelVal. And if you want to get signed up for our weekly newsletter, email me at D A Y N A at D-A-Y-N-A-D-E-L-V-A-L.com. Have a great day. We hope to see you soon. Bye-bye.